Good morning. I'm Nick Delgarden. I'm the executive pastor here at Highlands, and it's good to be with you. I know, I know when Jesus is going to return. Do, do you know? Do you, do you see the signs? I, I know. I know when Jesus is going to return. So have, so have some other people in, in recent history and claimed some things. So let, let's review a few of these. Uh, for those of you that, that were alive uh, maybe before me, you'll remember how Lindsay in the 70s had the best-selling nonfiction book titled The Late Great Planet Earth. He published it in 1970, and it sold millions of copies. New York Times bestseller, entire decade. And it was something that in that decade, he predicted May 14th, Night, or not yet, May 14th, 1988, end of the world. Jesus coming back. He was wrong. <laughs> We're here. Oops. But there's this fascination with apocalyptic literature. Even if you look at movies of the last 10 years, how is it all going to end? After that, in the 80s, another, uh, you know, once they realized, well, Jesus is no longer back, there was another series that didn't claim to be nonfiction. At least it was honest enough to say it's fiction. Uh, how many of you remember the Left Behind series? Anybody remember those? Yeah? Yeah, it completely confused end times for so many people of what things look like. But, but the cultural phenomenon around the Left Behind series, I didn't realize this until I did research. Compared to Harry Potter, it, it outpaced it by millions of copies sold initially. So it was a bigger cultural phenomenon than Harry Potter was in those first initial years. So in 1995, that first book came out, and then through 2000, 2000 then is when the movies came out and that type of thing. But there was just this confusion around the end times because of some of the, the writings there. At least they didn't claim to be factual, but it caused confusion for us. What does it look like? So when somebody like me says, I know when Jesus is coming back, everybody, ah, are you sure? So you're wise enough not me just pull that right on top of you. But the, the thing that we look at is where, does, where do those things come from? Where's this desire to see Jesus come back? Because it's very biblical to say Jesus is coming back. And yet the passage we're going to look at today is often where we see confusion land and how you interpret it. And so before we open up that passage, I want, I want to show us kind of initially that we can go in two different extremes when it comes to thinking about Jesus coming back. We can run, like our left-behind friends push us in one direction, this sense of which the whole world is getting progressively worse and worse and worse and worse, and we're landing in a spot where Satan's just taking it over, and we're just waiting for, beam me up, God, like, let's just get me out of here. And so we end up isolating into subcultures in the sense of which we just want to remove ourselves from culture and isolate. There's an extreme over here. There's also an extreme that runs all the way over the other side to say, we're going to conquer the world and Jesus is coming back and we're going to usher it in by Christianizing the world. And this was incredibly popular in the beginning of the 20th century before you hit World War I, World War II, and suddenly realize, oh, this expansion of Christian empire isn't quite maybe what we thought it was going to be. And we can lose some of the the, the core of the gospel of how it transforms hearts when we just say, Christianize, what does that even mean? It gets lost. So you end up in these two extremes. But as long as we're faithful to scripture, what, what along this continuum we see is that there's a desire to read and anticipate Christ's return and believe it's coming. But it's sometimes very confusing. <laughs> so let's walk through a passage where some of this confusion can come from and hopefully clear up some of it through it, and also realize that there are varying Bible-believing Christians that hold firmly to varying views within it. So Mark chapter 13, you have your Bible open, we're going to go through the whole, the whole chapter, uh, 
So Mark chapter 13. We'll kind of pause along the way, make some observations, and, and hopefully leave at the end of the day with an encouragement. Encouragement to continue to live in anticipation of Christ. Return. Mark chapter 13. The very beginning of this passage will be the first four verses. It says this. And as he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Verse 3, and as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished? This is incredibly important before we read the rest of Jesus' response. We want to look at the context of these verses. Why, is, why are they fascinated with this architecture? Architecture. When you look back at that first verse, look what he says. The disciples say, look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings, wonderful stones, wonderful buildings. Why are they enamored with this? <laughs> and if you look at these last several weeks in, in our series, we've been looking at the significance of the stone. Christ called himself the cornerstone. He's using this architectural side of these buildings to point out his key role. But then you also see, when specifically looking at the temple, that at that time, think about what these guys would have come from. Jesus probably grew up in a town of no more than three, four, maybe 500 people, a small town. These other guys, fishermen and others, would have been in small rural areas. Now, I can remember the first time I flew into Las Vegas. I realize there's lots of different ways you can go in Las Vegas, but let's just think about it from the architecture perspective, okay? When you fly, if you've flown in there, it's, it's like nothing else. It's this total desert, and then as your airplane gets closer, you see this glimmering in the distance, and it's just kind of fascinating. You get closer, and you land, and you're like, oh, that's pretty big, but I've been in big cities. I mean, Seattle's a big city. If you've been in big cities, you know, how, what's really different? But then as you get in the Uber driver and you start driving towards downtown, right towards the strip there, and you pull into the hotel, and you're like, whoa, the MGM Grand, if you've never been there, it's really big. Like, if you've not seen the Bellagio and the fountains, and you're like, how, how cool is that? No, it's huge. I mean, to, to walk down those streets, and it's this massive, massive, over-the-top, ornate architecture. And I could say, whoa, what wonderful buildings. Whoa. And here, they weren't used to being in Corinth or Ephesus. They hadn't been in New York, Chicago, LA, Vegas. These are small town guys going into Jerusalem and going, whoa, one of the ancient you know, wonders of the, of the world there of what happened and took place. These massive stones, which you can still go to Israel and see those ones that are laid down at the bottom. Huge engineering effort to place them where they're at. You read historians and they talk about the amount of marble that's, that's put in that place would mean that from a great distance, because Jerusalem was on a hill and the temple was there, it would glisten in the sun. And so even as you approached it, there was an awe of the temple in Jerusalem. And so Jesus, as he is speaking here with these four guys, as he's kind of across a little valley on another hill looking over, and it's probably, depending on the time of day, glistening in just majestic wonder. So they go, whoa, these small town guys just chatting, 
Jesus, check out that temple. Whoa. And Jesus says, let's take this moment of wonder and use it as a teaching tool. And so he jumps right in from there. And Jesus said, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, naturally, in a conversation, the guys are going to ask, what? When is this going to happen? What's going to be the sign that this is going to be happening? Because this is such an incredible structure. There's no way this is going to come down on its own. This is more than just an earthquake. This is, this is going to be something tumultuous that's going to happen. And so sure enough, in this section here, you have, and very important, that Peter and James and John and Andrew all ask this question. So now as we continue to walk through the passage, remember it's in response. They're visually looking at the temple. And as they're looking at that wonderful temple, Jesus then gives a response to when these things will be and what sign will accompany it. So let's, let's keep reading. In verse 5, he starts answering, speaking about the fate of this temple. And Jesus began to say to them, takes a little detour here before it comes back straight to their answer, but he began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. And many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. The birth pains. That phrase, birth pains, there is actually thematically picked up throughout Scripture, which often speaks to divine judgment on God's part. It's all through the book of Jeremiah. You see it occasionally in Hosea or um, Isaiah, but all through the Jeremiah, this birth pains of what's going to happen speaks of judgment. And so there's this eschatological or end times or this, this divine judgment that's coming. And so he's speaking about these birth pains. There's a, there's a judgment coming. So be, be cautious, be ready. Verse 7, it says, the end is not yet. So it's not saying like it's totally done, but just be ready. There's, there's some serious things that are going to happen here significantly. So let's, let's keep reading where he says in verse 9. But be on your guard. Be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my name's sake to bear witness before them. The gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father of his child, and the children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who doers to the end will be saved. Now, for Mark's readers in, in Rome, they would be harassed by the state, disturbed, confused. There's turmoil in Galilee and Judea that were coming in the years shortly after this. Jesus' word here would have provided incredible assurance to them at that time. I mean, this word, be on guard in verse 9, be on guard. He's saying, be ready, be ready. It shows up in verse 23, shows up in verse 33. And throughout that chapter, you see this warning to be on guard. Jesus with his disciples there are looking over the temple and, and picturing themselves on the winning side. And with Jesus, things are just going to get better and better. It's going to go easier and easier. And, and we can find ourselves in that place too, where it just feels like Jesus is going to win in the end. Shouldn't it be a little bit easier in my life now? Mm, careful. 
careful. And he's warning those disciples sitting right in front of him, be on guard. Things aren't just going to get easier. There are difficulties right ahead for us. Verse 10, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. That's, that's fulfilled in Acts. You see that. I think about the beginning of Acts. Beginning of Acts, chapter 2. The disciples receive the power of the Holy Spirit. The, the Babel curse of languages being changed is temporarily lifted. You see tongues where everybody hears in their own language the gospel, and it's proclaimed first to the Jew and then spreads even through the book of Acts into the Gentiles. Paul takes it later. But then just like here, it talks about you'll be dragged into synagogues, you'll be dragged before people to speak. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, I'll make sure I don't misquote the passage here. You can check it. <laughs> Acts 4, verses 8 through 13. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, and he spoke before the council, and they observed and said right back to him, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, and they were astonished. This, this is huge. Right there in Acts, you see exactly what's being talked about here come to fruition in these disciples' very own lives. He said, be on guard, be warned. This is going to happen. This is going to happen before the destruction of the temple that we're looking right at here in front of us. And this translates to us today. We can so easily, we can so easily lose hope when it feels like there's tragedy rather than victory right in front of us. When we feel like things should be a little bit simpler, God, why can't it just go better? <laughs> It just seems like I pray and sometimes things get worse. Or God, it's, why is it so hard right now? And this is what the disciples experienced in their life. But I think this is where we see this encouragement, these words that are spoken specifically to the disciples here have application in our own hearts. To take heart. I mean, Hebrews chapter 12, I love this chapter because it comes right after chapter 11 that speaks of so many people faithful to God through difficulty. In the beginning of chapter 12, picks right up. said, therefore, because of all of these witnesses of our faith, those that have gone before us that have endured a tragedy, therefore, lay aside every weight and sin that so easily entangles. Pursue Christ. And I love that he says both weight and sin. Some of us sin and they ca we cause our own continued challenge in our own life and grateful to God for his grace in our life that picks us up. But sin are those things that we rip out and God transform our heart and move it. But, but what, are the, what are the weights in our life that we can, we're continuing to carry? Maybe it's something that you think Jesus promised to you, but he never has. Because right here, even warns his followers, things aren't going to be easy right in front of us. They're going to be hard. And so the disciples here are listening and realizing, I've got to be ready for what's coming. Be on guard. So having established here, that things are going to get hard, which his disciples didn't necessarily ask that question. He now moves towards, as they're observing the temple, what's going to happen to that? When is this going to happen? What are the signs going to be? So look at verse 14. I'm going to read verses 14 through 23 here. It says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand. I love that he put that in parentheses, let the reader understand, because he realizes that might not be so easy to understand, <laughs> right? Focus on this. So we'll come back to abomination and desolation in a minute, but let's keep reading. 
Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. I believe this word flee here, this command to move, get out, go, flee, becomes that interpretive principle through this whole passage. Look how everything beyond this talks about fleeing. Okay, here he goes. Verse 15, let the one who's on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. On those housetops, they would have had exterior stairs. So don't even go back in the house. Go down those stairs and get out. Verse 16, and let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs, false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But... Be on guard. I have told you these things beforehand. I have told you these things beforehand. And again, here's that beyond guard. He's warned them. He's like, this is going to come. Be ready. And I think what's fascinating in this section right here is you go back and you look at that word flee and the way that it just is that single thought all throughout it. In just a section right before, it was like, be on guard, be ready. It was almost more a stand your ground, like it's going to be hard, but keep pursuing. The gospel's going to go out. And now he switches and goes, get out, <laughs> go flee. Why? What's the, what's the change here? There's, a, there's the abomination of desolation right there in that sense. Pops out right in verse 14. And that, that right there is a reference back probably to Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, chapter 12, verse 11. And it speaks of, pagan armies invading Jerusalem, stopping regular sacrifice in the temple, setting up instead this desolation of abomination. Well, that's person or an object, but it's sacrilegious. And Jesus here, the way he speaks doesn't seem to know or doesn't reveal to us what precisely it is, but it sounds like another God other than the true God that's set up in this spot. It's a sign that at this point, get out. At this point, get out. And historian Josephus tells us all about what was happening right around 80, 66 to 70 in the destruction of the temple. And the interesting thing is you read through, through his things, there's all of these would-be messiahs and prophets that popped up and promised to provide different things for the people because they were trying to raise armies to fight against the Romans, to fight against others. So you had all these clans that are raising up and promising different things. And here Jesus is saying, don't trust them. They're not the real messiahs. They're just going to pull it out from underneath you at the end anyway. It says, watch out, be on guard. It's going to happen. It's coming. It's going to happen to you. Be cautious. Watch out. They're trying to gain followers. This entire section, I think, is interpreted in light of that coming there in the destruction of the temple in AD 70. The climax of the destruction is in the temple itself. You see, and I'm going to make sure I get these names right, these Roman emperors succeeded one after another in A.D. 69. It was Nero, and then Othono, and then Vitellius, and then Vaspian. And each time with more violence, more murder. When Vaspian went to Rome to be crowned, his son-in-law, Titus, entered Jerusalem, 
burned, destroyed, and annihilated the temple and the whole area, crucified thousands of Jews, and wiped this whole section out. It was horrific. Jesus is warning, be on guard. Get out, flee this area. What are the signs going to be for the destruction of this temple right in front of you? Peter, James, John, Andrew. <laughs> all of these wars and all these people promising things that aren't true and this destruction that's about to happen. Get out, be warned. And he's warning them right here. Be on guard, be on guard. Verse 23, I have told you these things beforehand. I've told you these things beforehand. Verse 24 keeps on going in this passage and starts to answer some of the questions that that um, they were asking again. It says, but in those days, after that tribulation, all those trials and difficult things that were happening, the sun will be darkened. And using this apocalyptic literature of this, of this language that's so vivid, and the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels, gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as his branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things have taken place. I think there's a significant point to the destruction of the temple, to the reason that Jesus highlighted this right here for them. And it's, it's touched on poetically in this section, but, but I think it also is touched on much more directly by Jesus as he speaks to a Samaritan woman, and I'll, I'll reference that in a minute, but but here, the temple represented so much for the Jews historically of the center of where God was, the place they would go in the sacrificial system, that this was a powerful place of worship of God's presence. And that's, that's changing. That's changing. And the destruction of the temple just becomes such a visual reminder of that. And this isn't something unknown, but this is something that even Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in, in John 4. Listen, listen to these words. In John 4, 19 through 26, I just have a couple of those verses on the screen for you. It says, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Because see, the Samaritan woman was asking, do we worship on this hill or in Jerusalem? What's our place? Where do we do that? And I think in this whole section that the destruction of the temple and the move there is just continuing to, continuing to emphasize that it's not around a temple location. It's around Jesus. It's around those places that we find ourselves as individual Christians gathering together where we worship in an auditorium, in a gymnasium, in a, in a school like this. We don't have to take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship God there. What a powerful thing for our faith to see the place that Jesus walked in. I would encourage a trip to Israel, but for a totally different reason than what it might have historically been. 
And so here, in this whole section, the place of worship moved from being around a building that was destroyed into the place of a person, Jesus. And so he highlights that here. He highlights that here. This passage is moving us from temple worship to worship in spirit. The destruction of the temple just only highlights that in this generation, it's going to take place. Now, let's look at some of the language here that does start to point future because there's so many of these things that we see applied directly to the destruction of the temple of, of, in Jerusalem, and yet some of those things we look at and go, wow, there are signs of things that point even future of Christ's return. And there's so many different options of how we see those things, and I think it's most clear here in this last section because it starts to shift. Look at verse 32. Look at verse 32. It says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Hold on. <laughs> no one knows? Jesus, you just told us all these signs to look for so we would know. So I think this is where we do see a little bit of a switch. He's, now he's talking about something a little bit different. Maybe there's some signs of things before they're pointing towards it, but so much of that before was around that destruction of temple. And yet now I think we're getting you a spot where he goes, now let me continue to point you farther than what you're looking at right in front of you. Because Peter... James, John, Andrew, you're looking at a temple and we're talking about that, yes, but there's something even farther on the horizon I want to now clue you into. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. So it is the same theme of him talking here from verse 9 to verse 23 to here. For you do not know when the time will come. And he gives us a metaphor. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves his home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say, I say to all, stay awake, stay awake. No one knows. No one knows. So I started by saying, I know when Jesus is coming back. Sometime soon. <laughs> so 2020, January, no. No, let's not, let's not do that. But in this, in this section here, he's saying, no one knows. I think there's a powerful movement in this chapter that we can sometimes get confused on because I do believe in the beginning of this chapter as you unveil it, unveil it, it's pointing towards the destruction that you see in Jerusalem of the temple, that, that worship is no longer set around a place, it's continually around a person. You see that all through the Gospels. You see that through the book of Acts and, and highlighted. But he does at the end here land on Jesus is coming back. Amen. Jesus is coming back. Absolutely. And we don't know when it's going to be. So what is our responsibility? Stay awake. Right? <laughs> well, that's stay awake. I think that means a couple of things. And so I just wrote down a couple of things here that hopefully we can walk away with as we're encouraged together that Jesus is coming back just as he did before. He is coming again. And here's, here's what I wrote down. I said, stay expectant. We stay awake. Therefore, we stay expectant. We stay expectant. Jesus has done what he said he would do. 
So much of the Old Testament prophecy led up to Jesus coming. And we've seen that in various messages in the past to point out that direct peace. So much of what Jesus said, even in this passage, came to be with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So many of you in your own hearts and lives can look back in your own journey and say, Jesus has been faithful to me. And so many times, maybe for us following Jesus, there's a short enough period where like, it's just been a lot of trial and tribulation. So we look at others, that cloud of witnesses around us and say, God is faithful. Jesus has done what he said he would do. So we live expectant, believing he will do what he has said and promised he will do. Jesus is coming back. We live expectant. It's a motivation for holiness. It's a motivation for holiness. I think with, with Jesus coming back, there's an incredible grace and love that he's coming back. And no matter what, when we say, Jesus, you are Lord now, when he comes back, Jesus is Lord. And we say that willingly. And yet it's a motivation for us to live in radical holiness in the way that he's called us to. It's a, it's a motivation for scripture reading, for prayer, for relational time with the Lord. I love one of my, my profs in seminary. He said, the more that you study scripture, the more that you know about Jesus, it's not a waste as if someday you'll be in heaven and then you'll just know everything. It's not a waste, but how cool to study and know and have a relationship with Jesus. Like when you've been separated from friends for a long time, but you've stayed in contact through Skype through letters, if anybody sends those anymore, and through you know, different text messages and things. And when you reunite, how quickly the relationship just goes from there. When we spend time with our Savior and anticipating his return, it's a motivation for holiness. It's a motivation for these things. We're expectant. We're confident because of past events. And then we stay awake, we stay expectant, we stay purposeful. We stay purposeful. We don't run in extremes of just waiting for God to, to beam us out of here someday. We don't run to the other extreme of saying, I just need to colonize the world for Jesus, whatever that means, and we destruct, destroy cultures in a weird way. But we end up in a spot that says, the gospel matters and changes hearts, and more than anything, I'm gonna humbly continue to invite others to follow Jesus and not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when I share with others, I see his spirit at work in their hearts, in their lives. And so I'm purposeful. I'm purposeful with my time. In Genesis, we're to create culture. And so we create culture in a way that's honor, honoring to our heavenly father, that's beautiful, that points people through art and other means to who Jesus is in our, in our own culture today. We're purposeful. We're purposeful. And so my hope for us, as we finish a chapter like this, that some of, some of us here, We'll geek out and go into the details of what does every little piece mean? Or I see something a little bit different, a little bit different, a little bit different. Great. <laughs> let's do that and let's be rigorous in that. And yet let's walk away with the Lord's commands at our heart at the end of this chapter, which is stay awake, stay expectant, stay purposeful. Right now, anticipate, anticipating God's glorious return. Let me pray for you. And let's, uh, let's take communion together. God, I am so grateful for your word, for the chance to be able to, to walk through text like this. God, where you speak in an intimate setting to a few of your disciples, here, 2,000 years later, we have the opportunity to step into that conversation and hear and let your spirit impress upon our hearts what it means for us to live different. God, I pray that for those here that, that have followed you for years, may they be able to look back with a smile and see you work in their own heart and life. 
God, for those that are brand new and following after you, would you encourage and embolden, strengthen for those days ahead? God, would you come soon? We anticipate your return as a glorious reuniting of so many people who love you. God, we are grateful that you've called us sons and daughters, that you pull upon hearts. We want to honor you in all that we say and all that we do and all the way that we live our lives and the way that we spend our money and our time and our relationships. It's your son's name we pray. Amen.